0: Kia ora Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kyoto uh Clojo Scott Jones stockgoer. I'm the medical director at uh, Pinnacle and um, joined again by Dave Mabel Stern who's um, been putting a lot of effort into doing some keeping us up to date with uh, little clinical snippets um, for June of this year. So thank you Dave um, and um, yeah, thank you for the work that you do for us.
1: Thank you and ora Tato. This is um, a mismatch of bits and pieces I've come across in um, uh, reading uh, stuff that's come through email and other sources over the last month. So there's no particular theme, uh, but hopefully hopefully some hints that you'll find helpful in clinical practice.
0: Thank you.
1: So we'll just um, head off or start off with um, uh, a new bleeding risk tool for um, atrial fibrillation. So the NICE guidelines are now recommending the ORBIT tool rather than HASBLED. Uh, and it's basically because the um, it's shown to have a higher accuracy in predicting absolute bleeding risk than other bleeding risk tools. Admittedly, it won't be embedded in our um, software or um, clinical pathways for a while yet, but it's just worth knowing about and easy to access. And that's through the um, MDCalc website, which has got a huge number of calculators. a brilliant mm-hmm. website. I use it all the time. Yeah. Um, and this is just an example of the orbit um, Score. So you're looking at um, gender, haemoglobin if you're female, uh, age, bleeding history, EGFR and any current treatment with antiplatelet agents and it'll put you into a risk group and then an approximate um, bleeds risk which you can compare with your chad Vest to, to decide whether you want mm-hmm. to be anti in your patient or not.
0: I'll have a go at that myself actually when we get offline. The, look, it would be interesting to know what my risk is are
1: you are you on you're on anti-platelet agents yeah, yeah
0: yeah i am i am the but anyway <laughs> not
1: you have to know your egf you current egfr you mightn't have had a blood test for a while
0: uh, i actually i had one at field days and um, had a little point of care testing so yeah no i do not want my egfr <laughs>
1: um and then just start going on to something totally different. Um, just a reminder about the services uh, that Dementia Waikato and there are similar agencies throughout the country and in the, in the other um, DHB areas, yeah. uh, what they offer. And this came a bit out of a recent pod education session we had on the silver tsunami. Uh, and basically, um, Joe and I and other members of the, of the um, baby boom that are now approaching Uh, the age when things start to go wrong in a big way. Um,
0: (laughs) That happened about 10 years ago for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Varying times. Um, But just a reminder that the Community Health Pathways um, section on cognitive impairment does recommend early referral to dementia Waikato or the regional equivalent if you're diagnosed a patient with dementia. So the local team's got um, two OTs and a registered nurse as advisors who provide a free navigator service. Uh, And that includes um, education, families, information, advocacy, and support. Um, And they'll visit the clients in their own home. Um, If you go into the health professional section of the website, of the Dementia Waikato website, um, it has a referral form, which I haven't opened up here, or I can can show you. Um, Yeah. The referral form that you just click on and it will take you to a, a faxable or postable referral form um, families can can self-refer as well uh, if you're a rest time um gp there's a quite a good little handbook on uh, advice for for care homes for changed behavior changed behaviors or bpsd um, but the printable fact sheets i think are, are really quite helpful so there's a whole range of of sheets you can print off and offer patients immediately if you've made the diagnosis or suspecting a diagnosis of dementia about all aspects of dementia. So just a quite a handy resource to know that it exists. Um, And uh, down the bottom here, there's a discussion on enduring powers of attorney. And what I'll be doing as far as that's concerned is encouraging everybody to have one well before they get to the stage of being suspected with dementia, because once you've once you've become demented, it's a little hard to put one into place.
0: Yeah. It was interesting in sort of doing a, um, a screening test um, like the mini ACE at each time you do a, a driving medical, um, it, you know, uh, there are many practices that do that and it gives you a really good baseline uh, from which you can then sort of um, make those further assessments. And as you say, the, there was a bit of debate about how the benefit of diagnosing dementia at an early stage. And I think that resources um, such as those that you've just shown us are a really good example of what benefits a whānau can get from having a diagnosis made at, a, at an early stage you know being prepared for the future um, you know knowing what 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 the future is going to hold um, is 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 really helpful if that's you know if the, uh, just on its own you know um, never mind any sort of new medications that may be sort of in the offering that might might be of help although lots of debate around that
1: and I think it's also the recognition that it, it is a Devastating diagnosis for a lot of people, even yeah. if it's early stage or suspected, and as much support as we can offer at the time of diagnosis, I think is is important and appreciated.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and as you say, those um, resources are uh, relevant wherever you are in the country, um, there, and there are local services that do similar things in each of the districts.
1: yep slightly different names, but, but yeah. same theme. Yeah, uh, but the, the driver's license side of things is quite or drivers medical is quite interesting in in that how much information does the mini ace give you on your ability to drive um yes. you know, and, and should we be bringing up the road code and, and the scenarios and asking patients to you know tell us what their impression of the correct driving um strategy is under certain circumstances yeah so it could it could end up being an hour-long um an hour-long um assessment rather than the
0: 15 minutes or so we do at the moment yeah i mean the age concern also offer a um pre-driving test uh, um, learning opportunity um so if you're going to refer somebody for a uh, for a driving assessment then they'd be really keen to do that uh, to, to, to see their patient and then they can help to prepare them. But they also will do that I even mean, if you're not going for the OT sort of formal assessment, um, just as a way of, you know, refreshing your driving skills without having to go back to driving school. I think it costs about $30 um, right. the, through age concern and, um, and again, available nationally, um, which is really good. Um, the, also, um, VTNZ, I think I heard, uh, also offer a um, – a similar sort of um, on-road driving assessment for uh, for elderly patients uh, at a very cheap rate, um, yeah. which can so be really-
1: about, cool. about $48, so it's a driving safety assessment. Yeah. And the impression I got was that that's um, by, by no means a substitute for the full OT yeah. assessment. Um, and it was also interesting to find out at the session that some DHBs um, cover the cost of the OT full OT driving assessment for patients.
0: Oh gosh, there's another another sign of variation across a postcode absolutely. medicine. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, anyway,
0: that's- Oh well. thanks Dave, that's great.
1: Uh, just some current medication issues, um, some quite commonly prescribed drugs that we need to be aware of, so um, cetomacrogol with glycerol creams out of stock due oh. to shipping issues, but sorboline with glycerin is a reasonable alternative. Uh, Low-court and viaform airdrops, probably going to be unavailable for the next nine months or so. Um, and uh, Pharmax suggesting Kennecombe as an alternative. Uh, dual inhalers, st- uh, still unavailable, but you can prescribe your um, subutamol and ibotropium as separate inhalers if the patient uh, is on that combination. Uh, reminder from Medsafe um, to prescribe against um usual practice to try and prescribe nitrofurantoin by brand name now because we've now got the um, slow release or modified release capsule which is twice daily versus yeah. the, the normal release which is four times a day so macrobid if you're prescribing the twice daily modified release which it's going to be the most convenient and i guess if you remember bd bid and macrobid it's a helpful reminder
0: uh, marketing this- tool
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yes. well this one's been around i mean I, macrobid was around i'm sure 30-plus year years ago when I first went into practice. Right. It was probably the, the short-acting version at that stage. I'm sure it was called macrobate. But uh, anyway, um, and oxybutynin uh, is basically disappearing. Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, solifenicin is a, um, a fully subsidized alternative for most patients.
0: Yeah, um, which I understand has got uh, less in the way of side effects, uh, potential side effects. So, so it's not a, it feels like quite a big change, that oxybutin. It's one of those things that, you know, you've, you've grown up with. It's
1: been around for years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think solid, solid used to have um, restrictions on prescribing. It did, yeah. Usually So its uh, expense. Yeah. But anyway, there's something out there. Yeah, cool, thanks. Um, sticking with prescribing, just changes uh, that are coming up for the POAC uh, moderate cellulitis uh, program. So a move away from everyone getting IV antibiotics uh, to um, oral antibiotics with probenicid, which is, is just as efficacious for most patients. So the, the details will, will be coming out. The, um, the clinical pathway for cellulitis hasn't been localised for the Midlands area yet. I just have to check that uh, recently. Uh, but from the POAC perspective, I, I'm not sure we've been sending out anything at this stage. Has it been formally? Uh,
0: I think it has. Um, the, um, certainly in the L- Lakes District, um, the um, but yeah, worth checking on. I'm, I'm sorry, you, you've, you've caught yeah, me on the right. hop there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lakes
1: have been using it for quite some time, I think. So um, yeah. there's a bit of what, what's happened in Waikato. But, the, but essentially, it's um, uh, a gram of flucloxicillin three times a day preceded by Probenicid um, four times a day in, in some of the population over 100 kilos, uh, a little a little less for elderly people or people with low body weight. And um, if you've got a penicillin allergy, it's one of those query penicillin allergy keflexin and propenis is a reasonable alternative if it's a confirmed severe allergy then clindamycin 450 milligrams three times a day um the um if you've got concerns about absorption or adherence then the intravenous option remains uh but quite an interesting point that, uh, that comes with the um with the regime is that if there's still um, persistence of redness or swelling after 48 to 72 hours of the oral therapy. It doesn't mean it's not working uh, because it's a normal inflammatory response. So persistence rather than worsening
0: yes, would not be an
1: indication to um, to swap to IV.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's because uh, you, you would you'd expect it to have improved over that period of time, wouldn't you? Um, yes, if the patient so. is improving overall, yeah, um, yeah the um just because there's still some redness or swelling then um you know that that isn't an indication for iv but you know if the redness and swelling has got worse then that's they're not improving overall are they
1: yeah i mean i think pain is the other issue that that you would think if pain was still present that might be a more significant persisting symptom
0: yeah um, Pain always makes me think about uh, necrotizing fasciitis, and Absolutely. I know it's—I know it's so, you know, incredibly rare. But you know, particularly around this infection, pain at, at a little bit of distance from where the infection site is as well is a, is something I'm—I've never experienced it in, in for a patient. But um, I'm—you know—it's one of those things horror stories, you know.
1: Uh. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've read several complaints where it hasn't been diagnosed, and, and inevitably these have been very young, or as in teenagers that have died.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and and quite interesting, one of the one of the presenting symptoms seems to be pain out of proportion to the visible inflammation at that point. Yeah. As well. Is um, there
0: a, is there an association with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as well? Yeah,
1: there's a question mark over that there. Okay. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, just you know, if, you've, if, if there's ever a remote suspicion that that might be the case, send them, send them in straight away. Yeah. It's just a hideous, hideous um, disease. Yeah. Uh, end of Life Choice Act. So uh, this is quite complex. So I'm not going to tell you about the End of Life Choice Act, really just, just introducing some concepts. Um, uh, because it's coming into force on the 7th of November, which is not that far away. Yes. Uh, so there's a, a, a foundation training module available on the Ministry of Health Learn Online website. So it's free registration doesn't cost you anything to do it, uh, and gives quite a good a basic background on the um, on the legislation. Uh, and there have been some podcasts that um, the Ministry have been doing, or at least one so far, which requires registration. Um, and the one I the one I've attended so far was really on GPs' experiences with um end of life um care in uh canada and um one of the australian states mm. where, where that where it's uh, legal um but further training modules are being developed so it's worth checking learn online from time to time if you're interested in, in keeping up to date uh, and there's a forum um for practitioners uh, actively or interested in actively participating in the process uh, planned for 29th 30th of september 2021 so there's been no more information on that sent out yet this came out of the um, out of the podcast that I was at uh, but if you're remotely interested it might be worth just blocking off that weekend uh, in anticipation. Uh, so the ministry is estimating that be around about 950 applications for um, end-of-life facilitation and around about 350 procedures undertaken in the first year after the Act comes into force. Mm -hmm. It's quite possible you're going to be um, involved in terms of either being asked about it or or as involved as you want to be at some stage in the next year or so. Those figures, I think, are based on experiences in other countries. Um, The the SENS group is being established uh, prior to... The, the act coming into force, which is just as well. Um, so they'll basically be the resource, the source of all knowledge uh, in terms of listing um, those health professionals who are available and willing to be involved in the assisted dying process. Um, so that comes down to the next point, which is if you have a conscious objection to, a, to participating in the process, that's recognized as being you know, a very reasonable um, Um, position, uh, but you are required by the legislation to refer a patient to somebody who is able to assist them, and the easiest way to do that is going to be referring them to the SENS website, which has the list of of, uh, providers. The other very interesting point is, or from my perspective, is you cannot discuss assisted dying with a patient unless the patient raises it with them first. So if you're not permitted to offer that as, a, as an option of management, unless they've raised it, uh, and you can be subject to disciplinary um, proceedings uh, or proceedings for, proceedings for breaching patient rights if you initiate the discussion, which I find really interesting because Code 5, the Code of Rights, basically says you've got to offer patients all, all options for their management. Um, but the end of life... Um, legislation overrides the, the Code of Rights in this instance.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. We'll be running a clinical Zoom on this before November um, to get, gives people an opportunity to sort of think about it further and um, uh, providing some resources through the through the website as well. It's, it's, a, it's a very significant change in our practice um, and that all of us I think are going to need to understand um, because, as you as you say, it's extremely likely that patients are going to raise this um, raise this with us, and we're going to every every practitioner is going to need to to, to know how to deal with it. Um, so you know, it, it is going to impact on on every single one of us.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree. I think it's it's worth you know, given that this this next few months is going to go quite fast, leading up to November just not leaving not leaving your your process of familiarizing yourself with the with the act um, to the last minute and you may be getting inquiries before it comes into force as well.
0: Not my not my best day, but I have already had a complaint about um, raising the end of life choice act with the patient um, prior to her raising it with me. But I'll, I'll go into the details. Um, oh, but I, I, I managed to deal with it uh, with a a, a a very detailed and uh, apology um, from from uh, written apology from myself directly to the patient. So um, the yeah um, a, a baptism of fire for me. Right.
1: All the more, uh, all the more reason for everyone to get to get educated. I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: a swing again, just to some changes in the national cervical screening program. So, ones a change that is in force, the other are changes that are coming, but which we're bound to get asked about in the next little while. Um, so, um, the changes are basically around the eligibility criteria for um, cervical screening for women um, as they reach the end of the recommended screening time. So the current policy um, is to continue regular screening up to age 69. Um, That was the the policy and now it's been has been changed to allow people over 69 to be screened under certain circumstances. And the recommendations are um, essentially that um, if they've been regularly screened and have had at least two consecutive normal samples between 62 and 69 years, they can stop screening as usual at 69 years. Um, if they haven't been adequately screened, and it talks about this in a bit more detail, um, leading up to that time, then they should have two, two smears taken 12 months apart and can stop screening if both are negative. Uh, 70 years and older who have never been screened uh, should have two uh, consecutive normal um, samples taken 12 months apart before they go off the program let if you can persuade them to be screened if they've never been screened, mm. and um, abnormal any with previous abnormal results, there's usually has, has been advice from the gynaecologist um, depending on the on the nature of the abnormal result as to how long they need to continue screening. Um, so um, that I, I think, I mean, in my practice at least, the nurses are doing most of the smears and, and recalls. Um, so I guess it's just a matter of ensuring your your the staff most involved with smears are, um, are aware of the changes, that, that women will now no longer automatically fall off the, the um, program at the age of 69, yep. or should no longer automatically fall off the program at the age of 69.
0: The, I think it's gonna be about um, documenting those conversations, really. Um, the um, it, It's gonna be a really important part of that, particularly for those people that are unscreened. Um, you know, we we'll need we we'll need to be able to show that we have done this. And uh, you know, the population is ageing; people are living for longer, um, and you know, so it makes makes sense for us to to think about the impact on um, uh, screening programs on on people as they're getting older as well. Yeah.
1: Um, and I think that I mean the, these uh, recommendations will probably change again when the um, HPV swabbing comes in. Yeah. Also yeah um so i've already had a couple of queries about you know do i have to have another smear in in three years or can i wait till five years now um, yeah with the with the news that's around regarding the hpv but essentially um the screening test um the hpv swabbing will be implemented from july 2023 so it's a while away yet uh and the recommendation is that women continue um to be screened under current recommendations Uh, and not wait for the program change in 2023 so if they're due for a repeat smear in a year's time they should have it in a year's time not wait till 2023 for the swab um the um swab i mean we all know that it it can be self-taken or taken by a health professional you don't have to examine the cervix Uh, and if the woman has a negative swab result uh, screening will will be once every five years not every three years as it is currently um however Women with a history of abnormal cell changes or a positive HPV test will have to have a cervical smear. Um, so I think the, the belief that, that, that in some places seems to be around that basically no one will ever need to have a smear again is, uh, and these women that think they'll never need to have another smear is totally false. If they have a positive swab, they will need cervical smears um, and ongoing. Um, so uh, yeah, again, that, making sure our patients are informed.
0: That message hasn't really got across to the general public at this point, has it? Not I mean, to the general all,
1: public, yeah. yeah. Um, and and those women who, who have had previous abnormal smear results, or, or you know, presumably on what basis of positive HPV um, results, um, it seems as though they will need to continue to have regular smears or smears um, as per the current recommendations.
0: Yeah. But we won't necessarily have to buy boxes and boxes and boxes of um, disposable uh, speculum. The, no. Yeah.
1: One, one major saving.
0: Do you have any idea how many positive HPV tests we'd be expecting in a, in a group of 100 eligible women? Do we know what sort of rates?
1: I'm not sure, because I mean, what we're assuming is there will be some, uh, or what we're hoping is, there'll be a number of what? women who have never been screened or... Yes. or that will that will now actually
0: come and take the test. So, yeah, um, I'm really interested to see what impact it has on HPV vaccination uh, as well. With the clear association of HPV and screening for HPV, and you can prevent it by having vaccination. Um, you know that I'm, I'm, I'm it'd be interesting to see whether we really pick that up because, of course, HPV vaccination. And stop it from happening, and and stop you from developing cervical cancer. It, it just yeah. <laughs> why we don't put more <laughs> emphasis on this?
1: Yeah. In some ways, it's a shame that 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 the fact that women you know doesn't mightn't need to have a smear or, or can just use a swab seems to be more popular or more you know widely spread knowledge knowledge than the um than the um, benefits of the,
0: the vaccination. Of the so, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, that's good, and as you say, it'll have an impact. And then I'm sure it'll change the um, the recommendations for people um, in their in their later years as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would assume that if you've never had a smear and you have a um, a swab at seventy one and it's negative for HPV, then you're not going to need to um, to have anything yeah. further done. But, um, yeah.
0: We'll wait well, and see. We'll
1: wait and see. Uh, and just very briefly, um, the, the COVID testing guidance is. Um, being regularly reviewed and updated on the Ministry of Health website. So it's, it's really worth just keeping an eye on it from time to time. Um, messages at the moment are that the Delta variant particularly can, can present quite subtly, um, encouraging us to swab um, all patients with respiratory symptoms as we head into winter. Um, very elderly patients, if they're symptomatic, um, preferably use a nasopharyngeal swab, but if you're concerned about them bleeding to death, with the blood nose, and you can use an oropharyngeal swab combined with an anterior nasopharynx swab. Mm. Um, children, clinical judgement, um, not driven by the severity of the illness, but really uh, more for children on their risk status. Yeah. Uh, for children under 11 years, uh, and this is almost redundant now. But if you're testing or are, are testing any patients related to the Wellington uh, not outbreak. Um, there was just a request by the Ministry to put serve WLG1 on the request form, but I think that's just about uh, been exhausted now, luckily.
0: Yeah, we swerved a dodge before that, didn't we?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully, so a little, a little um, bunch of bits and pieces for
0: uh, for this session. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic, uh, Dave. Thanks a lot. So we'll um, uh, upload that um, uh, guidance, the, the written sort of document there, with all of the links uh, that you've created uh, to the website as well. And and just thanks again for the for the work that you do um, helping us with this. It's um, it's really really helpful, and I know we get some positive feedback about these um, clinical snippets and you know. Uh, your work is really appreciated. It's interesting stuff, Um, mostly practical, so uh, yeah, we'll keep going.
1: Cool,
0: thanks Dave. Okay. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video... Version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Kakiteano.